Okay. So my aim is to offer um, some thoughts on, and I'll try not to vary my voice volume too much since it seems to be amplified by the speaker. Um, some thoughts on kind speech and also <coughs> continuing the general overview of how to approach this path factor since it's different from the first two, which were more about the realm of wisdom, as uh, Leslie gave on the overview of the path. I think I want to emphasize um, something important that's been stated, it comes through in our readings in the context and the subtext in some sense, but it's worth being really explicit about it, which is that we use this word the ethical conduct section of the path, which is speech, action, livelihood, the next three months that we're working on. And the, the Pali word for that is sila, S-I-L-A. And we come with some idea already in our mind of what ethics is. I don't know what it is for all of you. It's different for each of us. But many of us have had a lot of impact from that word in our lives. And it has other words too, like integrity, like morality, ouch, you know, <laughs> words like that. And we live in a culture that has a particular, even if you weren't raised in a Judeo-Christian context, that is the soup in which we swim. And I just want to say very clearly that this idea of ethical conduct that's brought in from the Buddhist teachings, it just has a different way of being approached. And it's worth well worth, I think, trying to meet these teachings where they're coming from, which is not the idea of good and evil. Let me say that again. This is not about good and evil people. I'm good, I'm bad. <clears throat> that person is good, that person is bad. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is just not um, the framework. The framework is instead, is this skillful or this, is this unskillful? And so then that's not an absolute word. We have to ask skillful or unskillful for what purpose? Because um, you, you know, you're skilled in something for a reason. And so the skill is for liberation, for freedom, for being able to get from this moment to the next without clinging and without suffering and without identifying. And so what we're practicing is to be able to, sorry about this, I'm, trying, I'm doing my best on this volume. What we're practicing is to have our speech be part of our action and our thought and our way of being in the world as um, a being that is, that is integrated with what's going on around and is able to interact in a way that doesn't bring suffering. Now, we can't help other people's suffering necessarily, but we can do our best to uh, relate in ways that are true, beneficial, timely, kind. And we're going to talk about those. But I... I I just want to be so clear that none of these ethical steps are saying anything about the person. That's not the focus. It's really about developing skill in these qualities of speech, of action, and of our, the way that we're, the whole context of our life. So it may sound like I'm sort of hammering on that, but it's because I know that I also have the habit in my mind implanted from the culture that this is about there is a right thing to do. And if I don't get it, if I don't get it right, then I was wrong. I was evil in that moment or whatever. And you will see evil sometimes as in translations of Buddhism, but it's always 
in this context of these are practices. So there is not one, I was just speaking with someone at the break actually about whether or not there, you know, could we have actually gotten that moment perfect? And if, you know, was there exactly a one right perfect thing to say? Um, maybe there was, but it's not an absolute thing. The perfect thing for me to say in the moment might not be the perfect thing for you to say. Um, Suzuki Roshi said the aim was to have an appropriate response. And that means appropriate for what the person asked and appropriate for who I am answering it. So I'm sorry if you thought there was going to be a right answer and that all you had to do was learn these rules and then you would know it. It's a totally contextual. But there is truth, benefit, timeliness, and kindness. It's not just whatever I said was, and you know, my tension was okay, whatever I said is probably okay. So we're going to, you'll see how this goes as you practice it with it this month. So I wanted to focus on um, kindness. And I want to note that, um, first of all, in the reading, uh, four slightly different factors are mentioned based on the ten skillful actions, um, saying that we want to avoid speech that is false, slanderish, harsh, and idle chatter. I think Leslie mentioned those also. And then Gil Sutta quotes a Sutta quotes a, uh, quotes a sutta that lists five factors because kindness is broken into two. So what we're saying here is that these are not sort of absolute um, qualities of speech. They're just sets that are helpful in each case. So kind speech arises directly from the, the two of the wise intentions, the intention of non-harming and the intention of non-cruelty or loving kindness and compassion in their positive forms. Right, So this is the kind of speech that arises from those good intentions. It also counteracts uh, two of the unwise forms of speech, which are sometimes called slanderous or divisive, uh, you'll also see. Um, so speech that is intended, this is, has a clear definition in the teachings, slanderous speech is speech that is intended to divide people who are united and to further di di the divisions among those who are already at odds. And we know that there have been times when we have done that in some way or other. And the Buddha even acknowledges that there are people who love and rejoice in divisive speech. You know, we can look out in the world and see some of those, but we can also look for those tendencies in ourselves. And it's interesting, you know, why would that happen? Probably it has to do with being part of a special in-group, you know, the in-group that excludes that group. And so there can be a feeling of sort of enhanced inclusivity if I'm exclusive about some other people. And we, we need to really look at this carefully. What is the function being served if some are being excluded and divided uh, in order that I feel better the opposite, of course, is uh, unifying speech or harmonizing speech that brings people together who are previously divided and further enhances the harmony of those who are already together. And sometimes we may feel embarrassed or something to say speech like this. I'm not sure why, but it can you know, sound a little bit too unlike us to be so unifying and bonding. But if you've never tried speech like this, I recommend it. You can see how it feels, see what the impact on you is and on the situation. 
And then a kind speech also counters uh, the harsh speech, right? or also called abusive speech. So this is um, speech that the Buddha also describes in other places as being cutting, hurtful, offensive, connected with anger, and unproductive of concentration. Now, isn't that interesting? We can understand all those first ones. Yeah, yeah, harsh speech, cutting speech. Okay, I know about that. And, you know, children on the playground can be so cruel. But what about unproductive for concentration? So this really reminds us of the skillful, unskillful aspect of these ethical conduct steps. Part of the skill is in creating a harmonious relational life. That's important for us as humans because we're relational beings and that helps our own well-being and the well-being of others and the well-being of society. So wise speech helps lubricate that whole process. But remember that these ethical conduct steps come before the meditative steps of the path. Effort, mindfulness, and concentration. They are the foundation. Leslie said this. They are the foundation for being able to settle the mind and actually develop the mind deeply such that it can awaken or have further insights on the path. So harsh speech is the one that directly opposes concentration. And if you're not interested in concentration, then maybe it's fine. You can do harsh speech. You don't care. Um, but it's interesting. And if you might also check if you can see this, if you're sitting on the cushion, if you've said, if you've spoken harshly, if you spend your life yelling at people, how, how easeful and comfortable is your sit going to be? when you finally get to the cushion and close your eyes, it's not gonna, you're not going to be able to just settle down into um, very peaceful, easeful states. That relies on having spoken in ways that are kind, that are connecting, that are supportive for people, that are gentle. Um, this kind of speech uh, ends up with, um, how did Leslie say it? Um, not having regrets, essentially. The bliss of blamelessness is the fruit of ethical practice. And so if our speech has been blameless, then um, actually it's much easier to just let it go and sit down and not have to go over those conversations from yesterday, which you might notice sometimes come up in meditation. So kindness as a counteraction to divisive speech and harsh speech, very important. So this is, um, in terms of checking, this why am I talking, I love that, um, wait, it's really worth checking whether aversion is present in our mind when we're speaking. And if it is, we may wish to not speak at that moment because aversion will be supported if we're speaking out of that. Or at least if there is some aversion there, at least noticing that often our intentions are mixed. Did anybody notice last month that our intentions tend to be kind of mixed? Yeah, I see some nods. And so it may be that, yes, there's some aversion there, and there's also some truthfulness, and there's also some wisdom. They're all kind of present at the same time, in a sense. And so we aim to speak more from the place of kindness, more from this place that wants benefit, um, and downplay the aversive part. I think if we were totally idealistic about making sure that our intentions were only the three wise intentions, before we did any action, we'd probably never be able to act. So um, just incline, inclining toward these wiser intentions. I do want to say that um, 
kindness or spoken from a place of kindness is often how it's stated in the teachings is not doesn't always mean that the speech will be agreeable for others and that can be an assumption there's a a sutta that's very clear you know somebody asks the buddha do you always speak in ways that are agreeable to others they're actually trying to trap him uh, if he says yes they're going to give a counterexample and he says no they're going to give a counterexample because he's done both and he doesn't he doesn't buy into the way the questioner is asking as a yes or no question he says well it depends on the context you know i always speak in ways that are true and beneficial he's very clear about that those ones you don't have exceptions to but if you want to speak words that are um, disagreeable, you can if it's timely. That's interesting, right? And so there, are, he acknowledges that there are times we might have to say things that are hard for another person to hear. But if we are clear that that's, first of all, it's true what we're saying and that it's beneficial for them, it's not just, I'm going to unload on them. <laughs> um, and now's the right time. Um, but we can say things that are disagreeable if it's timely. Um, there can be some confusion around that in spiritual groups in particular, which can get into niceness instead of kindness. And that can be, that creates a shadow, then it creates a shadow of I'm not ever allowed to say anything that would be disturbing. Um, and that actually doesn't help the group. So I want to give an example, like for just to make this a more concrete. Sometimes a spiritual teacher will speak somewhat abruptly in order to wake us up. Okay, so I have an example from um, Greg Scharf, who's a teacher himself, but when he was uh, early in his retreat practice, maybe one of his first retreats, he was, you know, going along with the retreat, and he came into an interview with a teacher, and she said, you know, how's it going? And he said, well, I feel like, you know, I'm doing my best with this mindfulness. I'm, they tell me I'm supposed to be continually mindful all day, and I'm, yeah, but I think... I'm probably the only person here who's not really being mindful, you know. And she looked right at him and she said, what makes you so special? Because, you know, a statement about how bad and terrible I am is really, really self-centered, actually. It's just as self-centered as how great you are. Um, the Buddha acknowledges three kinds of conceit, the conceit of better, the conceit of worse, and the conceit of equal, <laughs> just so you know. But, you know, coming in and saying, oh, you know, I'm probably the worst meditator here. She was like, what makes you so special, you know? And he's, at the moment, he was a little bit shocked, but as he, you know, thought about it later, he realized that was really a great thing to say to me because it just, it just got him out of that mindset. And then he was like, oh, okay, right. So it's just, you know, just do the practice as best you can. And, um, you know, now it was, she somehow sensed that it was the right time to say that to him. There are, of course, moments, like Leslie pointed out, if someone's very tired and, you know, on the verge of tears, it's not the right moment to say, oh, I'm going to wake them up, <laughs> you know, with something. <laughs> Probably not the right moment. But she sensed that he was in, actually in a somewhat balanced place. And um, so she did. So... Can we handle that? I mean, this is this is spiritual practice. Your your views and your way of being are going to be um, challenged through practice. We've already seen that as we've looked at our views and our intentions. We see that the mind may need a little guidance now and then, and so there are moments where um, that can you know that happens and we get challenged and we are usefully woken up. So. 
talk also a little bit about um, why it is that we might speak in unskillful ways. You know, we intend to, to be kind and truthful and beneficial and timely, um, but it doesn't happen. <laughs> or sometimes even we, we feel like, well, this particular case is a little bit, it's like an exception to those rules. It's justified um, to, to do this in a certain case. And, you know, what's going on in our, in our minds there? So I, I'll just offer one suggestion to, to see. Um, we do have an idea in our culture that if we're speaking to express our opinions, that's okay. You know, any opinion that I have is okay for me to express. So we're justified to say that, but that's actually a view. It's a view, the view that my opinion is expressible it goes under that. Remember in the first month we had make a cat, make a um, inventory of your views. That would be an example of a view. Um, so that would ignore, for example, the impact that our opinion might have on others, uh, not to mention the impact that it would have on myself to express it. So there are moments where the kindest thing is actually not to express my opinion in a certain situation. Um, and to, this is getting into some of the nuance of speech, is to really look at our intention and our, and our impact. So I'm leading up to, I don't want this to only be about whether or not I'm a skillful or unskillful speaker. I want to talk about a little bit about the public discourse and the social media and the world that we swim in out there on the internet. Um, we only have to look at this realm of speech and writing on the internet is speech um, to see the poor effects of unethical speech. This is from a, an essay that Gil wrote recently, Gil Fronstall. Most of the great conflicts in our society today are not conducted on battlefields of armed confrontations. They are fought verbally, mostly unsuccessfully, in the arenas of everyday conversations, political speeches, TV and on the web, social media, books, bumper stickers, clothing, and even hats. The degree of hostility and vilification in, with which opinions are spoken has become a prominent social poison, creating so much divisiveness, discourse, and ill will the factional strife is now more prominent than conflict over almost any other social issue. Important social issues are being eclipsed by the intensity of communication that is false, divisive, abusive, and pointless. Those are the four qualities that we're supposed to avoid. So that's a pretty strong statement that he's making, but do you think that there isn't some truth in that? That you know what's out there is really not that um, good. Uh, I don't usually say this about things. Um, I don't like to have kind of a overall blanket negative characterization, but frankly, the quality of the public discourse is really, really bad right now. It's really bad. <laughs> and uh, the degree to which we might really think about what it is that we're putting into that. If you have a Facebook page, if you write emails, if you post things on Twitter or public sites somewhere, if you're out there ranting and raving, all you're doing is adding more crap onto the crap. <laughs> and, you know, um, speech that is false, divisive, abusive, and pointless, um, the more we absorb of that, the more easy it is for us to just keep putting it out. And the more that we speak in ways that are true, beneficial, timely, and kind, the easier it is for us to keep speaking in those ways. 
or to keep our silence if there's no other way to promote those qualities. So I say this not only for uh, all of our personal benefit in doing our speech practice, but really, really for the benefit of society also. It's so needed right now to, um, to speak in these ways. Which brings me from the out to the in, inner speech. It's the last topic I want to cover. So the speech, you may notice that you have some voices in your head, and we're not talking about, you know, psychiatric ward kind of descriptions, but we have these narrators and commentators, and uh, there's so many of them, right? Um, and the speech that goes on in our mind is also speech. Those voices are, where are they coming from? They're coming mostly from our views. Their expression of our views, interpretations, opinions, or projections. And all day we have this loudspeaker going in our head, and we may, um, it tells us what things mean, what is happening, and what we need to do or not do next. That, that's about 90% of it, right? For the most part, or what other people are doing. Um, I, I have considered sometimes that if somebody else were standing behind my shoulder, saying all of this stuff into my ear, I would turn around and strike them. <laughs> you know? But that wouldn't be wise action, so I'd have to be careful. But um, really, really, would you accept all of what goes on in your head if it were spoken by another person? Would that be your friend? Um, not, maybe not. Maybe. If we've cultivated our inner speech, we can truly become a friend to ourselves inside of our own mind. But if we haven't done that yet, um, I recommend the practice of working with our inner speech, also what we tell ourselves. Um, it's not that nobody sees this speech, because you see it. You matter. There is a story um, of a teacher who gave his students the um, task of going to the marketplace and stealing something. He said, but you can't get, you, nobody should see you do it. And you, you bring back what you steal from the marketplace and show me. And so all the students went off eagerly and they all came back with something and without the police running after them, except for one who didn't bring anything. And um, they all looked at him and said, why didn't you do what our teacher said? And he said, we said, he said, nobody should see it. But I would, I would have seen that I was stealing and so I couldn't do it. And that's what the teacher was looking for. I've also heard it said that it would be really useful and interesting for us to have a, an LED screen mounted on our forehead that is writing all the words that uh, is going through our head. How do you think that would be? And you could see everybody else's and they could see yours. Yeah, that'd be fun. So it's worth applying these principles of wise speech to our inner talk. Um, is what is being said true, productive of concord, inoffensive, and beneficial? <laughs> or is it more the other? And particularly the kindness. You know, that's what I want to emphasize, is the kindness to ourselves. We're so hard on ourselves. You know, we're so hard on ourselves, and um, we, we feel the effects of that. Even the simple statement of Greg on that retreat of, I'm probably the only person here not being mindful. Where does a, a statement like that come from? I mean, of course, it, he was balanced enough that at that moment he could hear the, the teacher say, that's, 
point out that that wasn't wise. But another approach, maybe if he was in a more vulnerable state at that moment, would be to point out, gosh, that's just not a very kind thing to, to be saying to yourself. And where does, you know, where is that coming from? And can we learn about that part of ourselves that is cracking the whip and is um, shunning or condemning us in some way? Um, you know, it's not, again, you're not a bad person that you might have some of these voices. For the most part, we pick them up from somebody else telling us something that we believed at a, in a, an age when, when we did, um, or other just other habits that we were somehow came into. And so um, part of the art of wise speech is to really sit and listen in our own heart. This can be something that you can do on the cushion. A lot of wise speech practice is relational, and some of it is internal. This, these, all of these ethical conduct steps have an internal and an external dimension. So I would recommend <clears throat> spending some time this month also on listening and hearing those voices that are a little bit harsh inside your own mind. And um, how do we work with those then? So I have a few suggestions. One is, at the kind of the top level, to not give so much credence to those thoughts. Um, I know this sounds difficult, but I'm essentially saying if a thought like that comes, can we see it as, well, that was a thought that was produced and not necessarily to buy into it, to believe it. Um, believe it or not, our engaging with them in various ways actually feeds them if we're not careful. And so it's, you know, you can't suppress them. We already know what happens. If you suppress them, they'll just keep coming. But if you really see them, just feel them as they are <clears throat> and let them go, it does, um, it does help. <coughs> if it would be useful, if you feel that it would be useful to engage with some of the unwise thoughts that come into our mind, we can, there is a practice of asking them what they need. This is not for the purpose of then supplying that necessarily, but to understand more where they're coming from. You know, it's, um, it's a kind of a gentle and tender practice. Something comes, it's really kind of harsh, and we say, what is it that you would need? And sometimes all they need is to be heard, actually, or that they need, they need for you to slow down sometimes. Um, or sometimes what they say, you realize, I don't actually need that. And so you just hear that, say, thank you very much, and let it go. But we want somehow to acknowledge without buying into these thoughts. Do you see the difference? If we don't acknowledge them, we're suppressing them. If we buy into them, we're agreeing with them and supporting them. So where's that middle path? As always, it's mindfulness. Um, I have heard of a wonderful practice, and I know people who do it, I've even done it myself a little bit, um, is to give names to these voices and, you know, allow them to be characters. <laughs> and so, you know, this helps them to see them clearly. So, for example, Jack Cornfield describes this in his book, um, A Path with Heart, is that he had the one that was his mother, and he had the one that was he called the judge, I think. And so when the, that person would come, he would say, thank you for your opinion, <laughs> and then move on. You know, but it was, you know, he, he allowed them to be there by giving them these names, but he saw them as kind of a committee that um, he didn't have to buy into. Everybody didn't get to influence which way the committee was going. 
So we will find that changing our inner speech changes our outer speech. And changing our outer speech highlights the ways that our inner speech also are not so wise. So they, they go together. You'll find this to be a mutual practice, and I recommend working on um, both dimensions. But we will find that when our minds are no longer filled with unskillful thoughts and unquestioned views and an unquestioned need to express every opinion that comes into our mind, that actually it becomes harder and harder to speak in harmful ways. We start having a feeling as we move toward the expression of an opinion that's not going to be useful, almost a little bit of a resistance, like, or a feeling like, oh, you know, I, I don't want to do that. Like, we may have felt it at times when we were, say, tempted to lie quite egregiously, and this thought just came into the mind, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to go there, I can't do that. Some kind of an ethical sense. That get, is going to get more finely tuned if we um, practice with these qualities of speech. And so I hope this will be, um, I hope you will see this, these practices with um, ethical conduct as something that's moving you toward a way of being that is, you know, much more easeful, much more productive of concentration, much more um, relationally skilled, and yet also um, increasing your sensitization to the times where things are harsh or untrue so that we can have that development of an inner, um, inner guardian. The Buddha defines two qualities, uh, hiri and otapa, you don't have to write those down, that are um, qualities of being concerned about how we're behaving in the world. So they relate to concern that we might cause harm or concern that we have caused harm. And these are called the guardians of the world. You know, the degree to which we can feel, have that feeling inside like, oh, it just wouldn't be right to say that. Thank goodness we can have that feeling. It saves us from those moments where we, where we are going to regret it later. So I think this is potentially a very rich month, and I really, really hope you'll see it as beneficial and supportive and be kind with yourself and not only see the times when it wasn't working well or whatever. So this is, um, yeah, this is good stuff. Okay, so I think we are on then. I spoke a little longer than I should have. That was probably not wise speech. You know, that's funny. There's another um, acronym besides WAIT, which is WAIST, and it's W-A-I-S-T, and it stands for Why Am I Still Talking? <laughs> One of the uh, challenges of teaching is that you can speak for a long time, but we did take a break longer than we were intending to. Okay, so um, we'll do another uh, chance for you to talk among yourselves. Why don't you get in groups of three again, and we'll see if that still works. Okay, so the first question um, is to describe briefly a time when you spoke kindly in a situation where you could have spoken with anger or irritation. And it's the focus... I know you, t you told some stories in the first part also, so choose a different one. And also, um, what I would like you to focus on, if you can, is what that felt like in your body. 
you know, when you you could have expressed anger or irritation, but instead you redirected, said something kind in some way. And what was that like for you internally and um, and in your mind, in your body, in your mind, to the degree that you, you can recall? Sound okay? All right. You can. And I will. Um, it'll be each person will speak and the others listen, like we've done so far up to now. It'll be a different format in the next question, but the same speaking and listening, and others can practice the wise listening that we've talked about. So the first person can start, and I'll give you about two minutes each, maybe only a minute and a half. Okay, so, okay, so winding up, and um, we do have a second question. So let's just um, allow there to be a moment of silence while we let that one settle. And then the, the format for this second question will be that um, you may have multiple ideas of answers to it, and all you need to do is say one, and then the next person will add something, and the next person will add something, and then you'll have another chance. And it might be that somebody else in the meantime says one of your ideas, but it doesn't matter. You just keep contributing to the group creating a whole list of qualities. And the, the question is, what conditions in your life support wise speech? And you know, ways to bring those about. So what are some of the conditions that are supportive of wise speech? So since you're going to keep going around and around, you don't need to speak a lot each time it comes to you, but just share one point and how it might be implemented and then let the next person go. And I'll just see the energy and call us when it's time. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so um, it would be great if anybody wanted to share any of the wonderful wisdom that you came up with in your groups about um, conditions for wise speech or the benefit of speaking kindly when you could have spoken harshly. Anything you want to share from what came up? Yeah. I just noticed as we went around, a lot of it had to do with uh, uh, loving self-care. Uh-huh. Can you because say more? We were taking care of ourselves. That yeah. That's a good condition for wise speech. It really is. Yeah. Loving self-care. How well I knew the group of person that I was speaking to and influenced how I spoke. Which way did it influence it? <laughs> Sometimes we're the harshest with the people we're closest to, right? right. I mean, yeah. It depends on the circumstances. It could go either way, but I'm feeling a lot freer because I knew this, that person or those people. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Does anybody else resonate with that if you know people? It's interesting that we, we do feel freer and we can also be trapped into um, patterns with the people that we know the best where we're not allowed to be different than we've been the last 25 times because um, otherwise they'll question that. I think it's just good to be aware of that the degree of familiarity with the group is one of the dimensions that's relevant. Yeah. 
much we've been influenced re in, in the immediate past by societal or internet or um, negative influences. So if you're coming in with a bunch of negative stuff being loaded into your system, then it changes it? Is that what you're saying? It tends to come out negative. That's very wise also, is that um, we have some choice. I know we have to be at work and do our thing, but we have some choice about what we put in. And if you're driving <clears throat> somewhere where you're going to have to be in a conversation, do you really want to put on the radio news in the car? Is that the wisest thing to put into your mind right before you're going to have a, a, an important conversation? Um, so this is, gives us some choice, right, when we start paying attention to what you've pointed out, Betsy, that what we've taken in comes out uh, if, we're not too, if we're not careful about it. Then we start being more careful about what we put in and when and how. It's long been shown that also that, for example, looking at screens right before we go to bed affects our sleep. In the same way, the content of what you might read right before you go to bed affects your sleep uh, and, and your general well-being. So I have a practice of um, reading something inspirational right before bed. Sounds like Leslie does too. You're welcome to jump in, by the way. Um, and this is important to start being aware of the food that we're putting into our mind because it comes out in our speech. Yeah. Um, similar to that, uh, not just the informational content, but the physiological content that we put into our bodies, and whether it's the lack thereof or uh, our surplus of. Yeah. So how much we're eating, yeah, or exercising, or coffee, or whatever. Yeah, keeping ourselves in balance. This is kind of a humorous version of that, but my staff used to tease me. They could tell when, if I'd gone out to lunch and I came back to our big staff meeting, they could tell if I'd had iced tea, because I generally drink only very mild green tea, and if I'd had restaurant iced tea, they said I talked nonstop. <laughs> and they said, there's some meetings, Leslie, where it might be a good idea to skip the iced tea. So I wasn't a very good listener then. Okay, well, um, it's also a moment, this is now a good time, if you have any questions about anything that's been brought up today, I mean, of course, you know how these months go now, you'll get reflections each week, and you'll meet with your mentor and so forth, but, um, yeah, what about this topic of wise speech? Jessica. Um, I just had a thought about body did you hear what she said? She talked about body language. That's so important. So my informational mind um, wants to supply a little bit of data just for interest, um, which is that I've read um, the different components of being in a conversation with someone and what factor of what amount of influence they have. You know, it's like, for example, the, um, the body language of the person, the actual content of what they're saying, and the sort of emotional tone with which it's delivered. 
is that the body language is something like 40 or 40 percent. It's huge. And then the emotional content is another 40 percent or so, the, the sort of emotional tone with which it's delivered and whether it's done in a connecting way. And the actual informational content is like 20 percent, you know, of, of what people are being influenced by. So it might actually matter less what you say than how you say it, in a sense. I think, well, why don't we brainstorm a bit? You know, what would be some good ways to include body language? I think, um, you know, for example, sitting with the body literally open um, is good. I do remember one time I was traveling in um, Japan, and I was in a meeting in a room that was so cold. Oh, my gosh. I mean, the room, it was just winter, and all the men were wearing suits, and so they had the heat turned way down and so I was sitting you know I was wearing my thin blouse or whatever and after the meeting my colleague gave me not literally an elbow but he said you know that's in Japan that is so impolite <laughs> if, you stay, if you sit like this it means you're totally uninterested in what they're saying and I wasn't uninterested I was just cold but you know I was communicating something that I didn't even know um, through that gesture and I suppose it can be forgiven because I had no clue, although the impact was real. Um, but I think this is important, that a literally an open body posture communicates something to people. An open face, like if your face is relaxed in a sense, um, it doesn't have to be bland and neutral, but if it's kind of pinched up or tight, you're communicating concern or anger. And I don't know if you guys have done those um, micro expressions that, um, who is it who does those? Paul Ekman yeah. um, has wonderful, some of them are public. This is now about facial expression, not as much body language, but there are uh, typical facial features associated with given emotions. And you can, you know, like sadness has certain ways that the eyes wrinkle and certain ways that the mouth changes. It's really fascinating because you think, oh, I can, I can get that from people. And they give you photographs and you'll see that sometimes there are certain emotions we're not very good at recognizing. Really interesting. Like, we just haven't been skilled in that. Any other thoughts on body language, Abby? Well, I think there's a self-fulfilling thing, too, of, like, if you're, like, even if you're in a difficult situation, if you, like, just like if you take a deep breath, it helps, right? And similarly, if you kind of open yourself up. Yeah. And also, I know, it's like, I mean, this is a little thing, but it, it's a, bigger thing you know my kid talks about video games which I can't stand and I'm completely uninterested but I'm interested because he's interested and if I can manage to when I remember which is most of the time now to like look at him and to behave like to have my body like kind You're of receptive. It's, I mean yeah. maybe it's it's not quite true actually but mm -hmm. it's kind for sure and um and, and, and it's true in the sense that I'm interested because he's interested. Yeah, you're interested though, in him. Yeah. yeah. And um, it, it makes me feel better. Like, like so then I am more interested. Like, it's, it's just a, the whole thing kind of builds on itself. And um, yeah. it's, I've definitely found that to be a very practical extension and of take a deep breath. I think that's, yeah. That, again, speak, what you're saying to me speaks again to what I think rather than, in a sense, needing to learn a catalog of right body language or whatever, there's something about our intentions. Yeah. And so your intention to connect with your son 
is reflected in your facial expression, in your body language, etc., and has the power to convey that deeper meaning to him. Yeah, and I'm saying the flip that you can, at least I can flip it and around, then, even if I'm not yeah. interested. It's like pretend you're interested. Then you've aligned yeah. yourself yeah. with um, those intentions and behaving in that way, living into them, begins to make it more real. Yeah, we're getting pretty close to, yeah. Chris. Yeah, so that's a body language thing for me, and when I'm listening, is something that, I, that for some reason I practice a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, smiling or, or even like a slight intonation, you know, and a, oh, you know, to make sure that this, this person's being heard in a way, very, in kind of a, really an empathic way, that they know that you're with them emotionally as well as being present. I don't do it when I speak. I have no idea what I do when I speak because I'm too busy speaking. But anyway, um, I do want to touch, though, on this emotional content and physical content versus the actual thing that when we're not physically there in speaking, so in writing, um, I know a lot of people that are in my circle, we put our own emotional content into what we're reading from the other person. And just today I had this person talking. And then my sister texted back, well, that's not caught, or I forget what she said, it was super short. And the person who was read this text said it was so much um, emphasis and had this whole character in it. And I didn't say anything to her, mindful, mindful speech. But my mind was thinking, you have no idea what her emotional tone was. But she really played, she really mm. put it on. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I, I know I do it all the time. If I bring something, I put my emotional tone on it. You have to be very careful with that. Most of the time I'm wrong. That's yeah, the important part. Most of the time we're wrong. When Kim, when Kim spoke about online interactions, I think that's one of the real challenges is without the face-to-face -face interaction. I had a, just a quick, and I know we're right at the end here, I had a couple of doctors who were engaged in a massive war with each other, and they work in the same building, same offices right down from each other, and they're conducting this battle by email, copied to other people. And I didn't do this as a boss all that often, but I forbid them to email each other. <laughs> and that if they needed to converse, they were going to do it face-to-face -face with me present. The whole tone of their interaction changed, and it's like the problem dissolved. It was being fueled by the audience, and the assumptions that you're talking about. Yeah. So there was no wise way to send emails copied to everybody under the sun. You know, the intention wasn't there. So shall we be? Yeah, e email is speech, yeah. by the way. Yeah. And it's true that these electronic media, um, it's very hard to convey more subtle emotions. So uh, I recommend equanimity as the main emotion mm -hmm. conveyed, and it's just not the right medium for something like that. So emojis. pick up the yeah. phone or meet somebody, um, yeah. or do a Zoom call or something. If uh, yeah, exactly, emojis even those are a little unclear sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So are we ready for closing announcements? Yeah. Is there are there any? Okay. Yeah. One I would more. Just say that with the email. I just 
my practice is to give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. So if someone's very abrupt in their language, I don't take it personally. I mm -hmm. just I just give them the benefit of the doubt, and that helps us. It helps me a lot. Yeah, because if if their speech is up to them. That's right. their karma. Right. Your karma is how you respond to it. So watch out for your karma. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, this would be an interesting month. <laughs> um, the wise action session is on January 13th, so we have, I think, a good five weeks on this one. And I also want to advertise that on uh, December 15th, which I guess is this coming Saturday, um, Vicky Asagud, is that how it's pronounced? Or Asag anyway, I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce her name, but um, Vicky is coming to do a half day from 9.30 to 12.30 on Wise Communication. So this Saturday, if you're interested, there should be a, a yellow flyer for it on December 15th. All right, thanks everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.